Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From America's farm-to-fork capital in Sacramento, I'm Amber Stott, chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system. Today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start Raising Kale. It is going to be a delicious revolution. And I think that kale is symbolic of the whole revolution. Because who would have ever imagined that 10 years ago? Our children would be demanding it. (laughs) Can our food teach us values? Will eating seasonally change you? How is fast food harming our kids? In this episode, the pioneer of both the farm-to-table and farm-to-school movements shares her insights on the deep connection between our climate and our farmers and how school lunch offers a solution. Her journey starts with a trip to France that explodes into a food movement. Her work has influenced how California chefs cook in restaurants and how kids eat in schools around the world. In the culinary world, my guest today needs no introduction— She's widely known in California for her pioneering efforts to create California cuisine, which focuses on farm-fresh, seasonal ingredients. She also established one of the first school-based programs to inspire kids to cook and eat this way. She's an author, an activist, and a true kale raiser. Welcome to Raising Kale, Chef Alice Waters. Thank you so much. It is a delight to be speaking with you, and I wish it was in person, but of course, uh, times are different right now. I first want to congratulate you. It is your, is it 50-year anniversary? In our 49th year. My goodness, that is um, quite an accomplishment. And so, yeah, (laughs) congratulations. So you're considered the pioneer of two important movements in food, and both here in California. First is California farm-to-table cuisine, and the second is farm-to-school. So let's, let's start with farm-to-table. What does that term mean to you, and how did you start this farm-to-table movement that your <laughs> restaurant is known for? I guess it goes back to that trip I took to France in 1965. 
I felt like I'd never eaten before. And I tasted things I had never had, things like oysters and <laughs> all kinds of exotic uh, pate. And just experience what it was like to live in Paris and buy your food that was local and seasonal. And this was way before fast food had gone to France, and it was before there were any herbicides and pesticides on the land. And it was an experience to fall in love with the culture of France, and that, of course, included food. And so you brought that mentality back with you. Well, I came back home, and I decided I wanted to live like French. (laughs) I wanted to go shopping like that. I wanted that taste. I was really looking for taste. Maybe I knew something about the organic food movement and the beginnings of farmers markets, but it was really focused on taste for me. And that led me to the doorstep of the farmers and the ranchers who were growing food and raising animals in a very different way. They were taking care of the land, they were growing food organically and seasonally and picking it when it was right. And so we started to build this network. We had a forager who worked on our staff. She worked at the restaurant and she helped us to find the people that were within an hour or two of Japanese. I would say that the farm table movement got a real meaning when Sibella Krauss started this tasting of summer produce. And she invited restaurateurs and farmers to meet together and we could talk about what we would like to see the farmers plant and they could see what we were doing with the food. And the first year, we probably had five farmers and five restaurateurs. The second year, we probably had 25 of each. And in the third or fourth year, she decided to do this big event at the Oakland Museum. And there were about 300 (laughs) vendors that came, (laughs) and equally that many restaurateurs, people that were very, very committed to this idea of supporting the people who were taking care of the land. Jim Hightower came and spoke. He was from Texas. He was one of those agricultural, political people in in the government of Texas. And he was a radical and really gave us the impression that this was absolutely politically vital for us to do. And so this this movement began to form, it sounds like, and it started with the taste of amazing food, um, and it did begin yeah. to become political. You're known as an activist, um, and, you know, so so talk about how the food became political. Well, I'm sure that uh, the 60s writer, Silent Spring, and Diet for a Small Planet made a big impression on me. These are all books yeah. that you're referencing, yeah. Diet for a Small Planet, which came out in the 60s. It just released an anniversary copy as well. Yeah. I knew that I I believed in organic food, but I didn't really understand how important it was for our own health and for the health of the people who came to Chippenese. 
And when we got connected with Bob Kennard and we really established him as our main farmer, that was the beginning of our deep edible education at Chez We would go and pick up the boxes of produce, take up the scraps that he could make compost from what we were collecting at the restaurant. We'd bring back the vegetables. And we began to understand how vital he was to the taste of what we were serving at Chez Panisse and the nourishment of the food. That really changed everything for me. I don't think of it so much as farm to table as I do table to farm, if you will. I think we are a restaurant that is supporting a farmer or a rancher. We will do whatever it takes. We want to buy the food directly. No middleman who's taking the money. When farmers have to get up very early in the morning, take their food to the farmer's market, and they're not sure whether they're going to be able to sell it, it's very hard work for them. They need to have a reliable buyer. And that's when I really started to understand the idea of school-supported agriculture, where you're not just hoping to make a connection with local farmers, but you're actually seeking them out and having a direct connection so that they don't have to sell to a wholesaler who takes a cut and they can't make the money they need to make to pay their farm worker and the whole work of running a farm and the precariousness of it, the fragility of that, especially at this moment of climate change. Absolutely. That relationship that the consumer and the farmer have is probably one of the most important and and part of why that eating local has become a movement and not uh, and something political, right? Because it is exactly it's so vital. I love it is. And we and we have to ask ourselves every time we buy food, where did it come from? And I don't trust the people who are buying food for the big markets and are bringing it in from all around the world. I don't know who's certifying that food organically. I don't know whether it's being produced in an industrial system that is not taking care of the people that are working in the factories or working on the farm. And I'm wanting to really know the people who are producing in the area where I live. Because to me, the most important part, and you would think that this would be hard to do, which is eating seasonally. But once you start doing it, it's really life-changing. Because all of a sudden, you're connecting with that moment in time. And people will say, oh, that's very good for you to do in the state of California because you get everything all the time. But that's not true. We don't have any tomatoes after September, maybe a few lingering into October. And we don't have a single tomato at the restaurant (laughs) unless we have canned a tomato during the year until the next July or August. But we change the menu and we think about what we can get right now. And there's beautiful squash, there's pomegranates, there's new crop walnuts, there are pears. 
there's kale, <laughs> <laughs> young kale. There's so many ingredients that are bringing me to this moment in time. And that's a kind of harmonious relationship that I want to have. I'm always connected to the world outside. And you've done this so well in your restaurant, Chez Panisse. Um, and, and then very early on, you realized that this table to farm notion should be being taught in schools. And you're one of the pioneers of the farm to school movement. So, so talk about those early days and where that connection came and how that work began. When I was writing my memoir, and most recently I've been writing this manifesto about how food can teach us value and what has happened to our food system in the last 50 years. Because when I grew up in New Jersey in the 50s, this was before fast food. This was right at the time when that transition was happening and frozen foods were coming in and canned food. But before then, you know, my parents had a victory garden from the wartime and we were eating corn and tomato in the summer and they canned the apples for the winter and make rhubarb compost, all of that. And so I knew in a way it was possible to do seasonal eating no matter where we lived in the world. And I was very concerned when my daughter was growing up. I was trying to imagine where she would be going to school and what was going on in terms of school food. And that was probably 30 years ago. And uh, I just happened to (laughs) be talking to a reporter and saying, what could have happened to the public schools in the state of California? How could we be number 47th in terms of academic achievement? How could we have abandoned our schools in a city with the great University of California? And I think it happened for many reasons. Uh, One of the big reasons is because of this indoctrination that we have all had from the fast food industry. They have been teaching us that more is better, that time is money, that everything should be available 24-7, that everything should be uniform. And maybe most serious of all is that food should be fast, cheap, and easy. But food has, since the beginning of time, always been something precious and something nourishing and affordable around the world, but always precious. You never wanted to waste. And the industry has been so pervasive and so uh, strong in their advertising that we believe that feeding children in schools It's impossible because of the numbers involved. We can't make real food. That there's not enough time between all the academic curriculum that kids need to have. And all of those ideas have become, uh, I I consider them myths of, of the fast food culture. And that have prevented us 
to taking action in the public school system. So that's when we dreamed up this idea at Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School with the principal who said, I read the article that you, when you were talking about the school system in Berkeley, and I would like you to come and help us. So that's what I did. I met with Neil Smith, and I said, I just see it all the way. I was a Montessori teacher, and we could have uh, a classroom in the garden and a classroom in the kitchen. And not a classroom for teaching gardening, per se, or a classroom for teaching cooking, per se, but a classroom to teach all of the academic subjects in a hands-on fashion. And I believe strongly that the best way to teach is by doing it, by doing it, by, by engaging all of your senses so that when you're out there in your math class in the garden, you know, and you're maybe planting seeds, you're touching, you're calculating that you may be eating a raspberry on the way, maybe smelling some of the edible flowers in the garden. You are experiencing that, that math class in a whole different dimension. And it's the same thing that happens in the kitchen classroom. And so that is what we started, and that began 25 years ago at a middle school that has a thousand kids, six, seventh, and eighth graders who speak 22 different languages at home. So you can imagine that, in a way, it was a perfect test case for us that if we could demonstrate the academic viability of this idea, and if we could teach the values of stewardship and nourishment and community and social justice, and to all of these students, that we would have really succeeded in changing the public school system, the industrial model that we have now that has really reduced teaching to a kind of race to graduation and forgetting that every student needs to be empowered to find his or her own way and learn to live together on this planet. And you've been so successful at Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School and and now, you know, people come to your Edible Academy in Berkeley from around the world every year to learn this model. The, there is a movement. Uh, and this year, the state of California, for the very first time, put money in the state budget for farm to school grants, which previously were only available at the federal level. Um, you know, and, and you were instrumental to that happening. Um, you've continued to be a very strong activist to spread this throughout the, the, you know, not just your community, but really, truly the globe and the state. Um, how important is this kind of policy work? I can't think of anything more important, seriously more important than really teaching the values that we're going to need for the future of this planet. And we need to really address the climate change emergency. 
And the best way to do this is to think of the schools as an economic engine for supporting the people that are taking care of the land, the regenerative organic farmers. And I am hoping that the money that goes into the farm to school movement will be directed towards those people who are taking care of the land and their farm workers, because this is the critical part. We have such an enormous industrial food distribution in between the schools and the land that we have to make that distinction. And that's why I like to call it school-supported agriculture. I just worry about K-12 because it hasn't ever had the money again since Prop 13 to really pay the teachers, to pay the cafeteria workers, to think about rebuilding the schools. And if we had that leadership from the University of California with its mission and history and its land, it's a land-grant university, it could really educate, edibly educate its students and help to make K-12 what it really needs to be. And you're really talking about uh, a a term that's quite popular right now, but systems change, right? You're talking about changing (laughs) individual school systems. You're talking about changing state government. You're talking about changing the massive institution of UC Davis. I mean, these are important changes for the stickiness of this kind of work, right? I am talking about that, but I'm talking about it in a very different way. I'm talking about the way in which I was deeply changed by that connection to seasonality and nature and taste. I'm saying that this change is not difficult to do. (laughs) I'm writing a book right now that is a book about school lunch. What can we cook that could fit into the USDA reimbursement? What is affordable? What is delicious? What is nutritious? What is culturally important for teaching uh, biodiversity and social justice? What can I make? Well, I can make a lot of things. <laughs> and I just love it that, that it's not about money. There are foods that around the world that are really affordable and delicious. And so we think about kale. There you are. We're right back at kale. Um, and uh, I always say at the Edible Schoolyard that it was six weeks to kale, when the kids were empowered to cook it themselves, they loved it. Mm -hmm. They loved it. It's the same way 
with with beans. They come in all colors and shapes, and they're so nutritious and so inexpensive. Think of things like squash, which are available right now, and and uh, there's not a kid who doesn't want squash probably every day, and it's really inexpensive and it can be roasted in the oven and made easily and there are so many things that come from around the world whether it's hummus whether it's a roll your own sort of sushi that the kids love at the edible schoolyard it's knowing that school lunch could actually be an academic subject. What if you were teaching the history of the Middle East and you were serving the kids the tabbouleh salad, pita bread, hummus, a spicy carrot soup? What if you were teaching a language at lunchtime and everybody was speaking Spanish sitting at a table? You could get academic minutes for eating school lunch. Can you imagine? It's a dream. I mean, it's it's not a dream. It's something that people have done since the beginning of time, that we cook seasonally, that we eat around the table with family. Children ate what was available to them. They grew the food. They were connected to the people who grew the food. And so these are human values. And when we get connected to them, we feel like we're home in a way. They don't take learning. They just take the experience of communication at the table, lighting a fire, taking bread out of the oven that you made yourself and the aroma of that. It brings you back to your senses. It brings you back to feeling good. And that's something that fat food can never do. And I'm not saying that there's no such thing as fast slow food. That means you've bought your organic tortilla and you put it on the fire like I did this morning for my breakfast right on the stove. And I spread it with hummus and I ate it right there. And that's fast slow food. But there's no experience in the fast food industry of a sense of real nourishment, a sense of connectedness, a sense of purity, a sense of seasonality. So those are the things that connect us. That's the beauty of it. And that has been the beauty of the Edible Schoolyard for 25 years. And these are the values that have been scaled. I hate to use that word, <laughs> but that's what happens naturally, effortlessly. We don't own anything that's called the Edible Schoolyard. But there are almost 7,000 people that are on our website. Now, how did that happen? It happened because people around the world, the people in the slow food movement 
around the world, came and said, I want to share our best practices on this network. And they became part of it. And so now we have best practices from people around the world that are in different cultures, different uh, different school systems, different age groups, even. Yeah, different school systems, different growing seasons, hot and, hot and cold and the whole <laughs> nine yards. But we tried at the beginning to uh, have schools um, in different places to demonstrate the universality of the idea. So I know that the uh, network is a gold mine in a way, and that I wish I could visit every one of the 7,000 schools. <laughs> uh, but I am thrilled whenever I do, and I know that that's what could happen in California. You're saying a lot of really important things. This has been an amazing conversation. I know that this is a universal idea. This could happen in every school of the world. We could, from kindergarten, be teaching these values that will save the planet and save the human <laughs> species. <laughs> yeah, it's important to our health. It's important to the planet. Absolutely. We have to spell one other very important myth, and that's that health begins at your choice of what you're eating whether more vegetables, less meat, all of that. And I say health begins in the soil. And all kinds of uh, people are discovering what it means to eat food that's regeneratively grown. And having all of those natural chemical actions going on in the soil that actually has the possibility of repairing our broken immune system. Wouldn't that be a gift to humanity to kickstart this in the public school, to get that regenerative movement going and thriving because our schools wanted that food to nourish the students. And we're one step closer uh, because of all of the important work that you have done throughout your career. And, you know, California is better for it. I, we, I even met a woman from Japan who went through the edible schoolyard. Oh. <laughs> you know, there's just so many children and so many communities benefiting from the work that you started and the ideas that you have planted. And we are all so grateful. Well, I really appreciate it. I I think, again, that these are ideas that are universal. I mean, I learned them from the culture of France when I was there. I learned them from Montessori, Maria Montessori, and her ideas about educating people in India and in the slums of Naples, you know, hundred more than a hundred years ago in the 1880s and she felt that the children were sensorily deprived 
because of hunger and poverty. And I feel like we have a population of the world that is sensorily deprived because of the indoctrination of a fast food culture. And that is what has really prevented us from doing the right thing and the natural thing for ourselves and for our children. And just one final note as we, sadly, our time is uh, winding down together. Um, how, yes. how would you like people to get involved, no matter where they are listening from? What can they do? Well, every day you can ask the question, where did this food come from? Exactly. What farm? You can ask, you can shop at the farmer's market. Every Sunday, I love to have a meal with my friends and family when I can. These days, it's very important to me that we buy food and then we all cook together and then we all sit down and eat it. And then we all wash the dishes together. <laughs> and this is a ritual. And it's something really delightful to do. I love that. We don't want to think of cooking as drudgery or farming as drudgery. These are activities that can give you enormous pleasure. And they're not work. They're a delight. And I think we, again, have learned this from the industry that would like us to buy their products. So cooking together, buying to directly from the farmers farmers market are things can, that can be done right now. Plant a garden. I dug up my front yard and planted a victory garden at the beginning of the pandemic because I was worried about not having salad. If you could imagine, mm -hmm. I was worried about our farmers so much. And that's what we have been doing all these months is trying to support the farmers and the ranchers and the fishermen who have supported us for all these years at Shape and Eat. Absolutely. This is so important. So I hope that our listeners remember to use that phrase table to farm and recognize <laughs> their consumer power when they support yes. a local farmer. I hope that, um, that we can just build a more beautiful uh, set of values and uh, food culture based on the wisdom that you've shared with us here today. And I hope that our listeners like you uh, keep raising kale. And I'm so <laughs> grateful, so grateful for the time that you shared with us. Thank you so much. It is going to be a delicious revolution. And I think that kale is symbolic of the whole revolution. Because who would have ever imagined that 10 years ago? <laughs> that our children would be demanding it. <laughs> Thank you for joining me and Chef Alice Waters for a look at the power of school lunch to improve health and academic performance for kids while also being an economic driver for farmers. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends. In our next episode, you'll meet a woman who travels the globe to work with farmers and cooks. Her team doesn't wait for natural disasters like hurricanes to strike to do their life-saving work. 
They build up local food communities to survive disasters like these. You'll discover how breadfruit is improving the local economy in Haiti. What is breadfruit? You'll find out next time on Raising Kale. <laughs>